Chapter Thirty Six, Part Two of *The Heir of Redcliffe*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. *The Heir of Redcliffe* by Charlotte Young, Chapter Thirty Six, Part Two. At night, sheer exhaustion worked its own cure. He slept soundly and awoke in the morning revived. He heard from Arnaud that Lady Morville was pretty well, but had not slept, and presently Mrs. Edmonston came in and took pains to make him comfortable, but with an involuntary dryness of manner. She told him his uncle would come to see him as soon as he was up, if he felt equal to talking over some business. Philip's brain reeled with dismay and consternation, for it flashed on him that he was the heir of Redcliffe. He must profit by the death he had caused. He had slain, and he must take possession of the lands which, with loathing and horror, he remembered that he had almost coveted. Nothing more was wanting. There was little consolation in remembering that the inheritance would clear away all difficulties in the way of his marriage. He had sinned. Wealth did not alter his fault. And his spirit could not brook that if spurned in poverty he should be received for his riches— he honoured his aunt for being cold and reserved, and could not bear the idea of seeing his uncle ready to meet him half-way. After the first shock he became anxious to have the meeting over, know the worst, and hear on what ground he stood with Laura. As soon as he was dressed he sent a message to announce he was ready, and lay on the sofa awaiting his uncle's arrival as patiently as he could. Mr. Edmonston, meanwhile, was screwing up his courage— not that he meant to say a word of Laura, Philip was too unwell to be told his opinion of him, but now he had ceased to rely on his nephew he began to dread him in his overbearing ways, and besides he had a perfect horror of witnessing agitation. At last he came, and Philip rose to meet him with a feeling of shame and inferiority most new to him. "'Don't, I beg,' said Mr. Edmonston, with what was meant for dignity. "'Lie still. You had much better. My stars, how ill you look!' he exclaimed, startled by Philip's altered face and figure. "'You have had a sharpish touch, but you're better, eh?' "'Yes, thank you.' "'Well, I thought I'd better come and speak to you if you felt up to it. Here is—here is—I hope it's all right and legal, but you can tell better than I, and you are concerned in it anyhow. Here is poor Guy's will, which we thought you had better look over, if you liked, and felt equal, eh?' "'Thank you.' said Philip, holding out his hand, but Mr. Edmonston withheld it, trying his patience by an endless quantity of discursive half-sentences, apparently without connection with each other, about disappointment and hopes and being sorry and prospects and its being an unpleasant thing and best not raise his expectations, during all which time Philip, expecting to hear of Laura and his heart beating so fast as to renew the sensation of faintness, waited in vain, and strove to gather the meaning and find out whether he was forgiven, almost doubting whether the confusion was in his own mind or in his uncle's words. However, at last the meaning bolted out in one comprehensive sentence when Mr. Edmondson thought he had sufficiently prepared him for his disappointment. Poor Amy is to be confined in the spring. There Mr. Edmondson stopped short, very much afraid of the effect— but Philip raised himself, his face brightened as if he was greatly relieved, 
and from his heart he exclaimed, "'Thank heaven!' "'That's right. That's very well said,' answered Mr. Edmonston, very much pleased. "'It would be a pity it should go out of the old line, after all, and it's a very generous thing in you to say so.' "'Oh, no,' said Philip, shrinking into himself at even such praise as this. "'Well, well,' said his uncle. "'You will see. He has thought of you, be it how it may. There.' I only hope it is right, though it does seem rather queer, appointing poor little Amy executor rather than me. If I had but been here in time, but t'was heaven's will, and so it does not signify after all if it is not quite formal. We understand each other. The will was on a sheet of letter-paper in Arnaud's stiff French handwriting. It was witnessed by the two Mr. Morrises, and signed on the 27th of September in very frail and feeble characters. Amabel and Markham were the executors, and Amabel was to be sole guardian in case of the birth of a child. If it was a son, ten thousand pounds was left to Philip himself. If not, he was to have all the plate, furniture, etc., of Redcliffe, with the exception of whatever Lady Morville might choose for herself. Philip scarcely regarded the legacy, though it smoothed away his chief difficulties, as more than another of those ill-requited benefits which were weighing him to the earth. He read on to a sentence which reproached him so acutely that he would willingly have hidden from it, as he had done from Guy's countenance. It was the bequest of five thousand pounds to Elizabeth Wellwood. Sebastian Dixon's debts were to be paid off, one thousand pounds was left to Marianne Dixon, and the rest of the personal property was to be Amabel's. He gave back the paper with only the words, "'Thank you.' He did not feel as if it was for him to speak, and Mr. Edmonston hesitated, made an attempt at congratulating him, broke down, and asked if it was properly drawn up. He glanced at the beginning and end, said it was quite correct, and laid his head down, as if the examination had been a great deal of trouble. And— "'What do you think of Amy's being under age?' fidgeted on Mr. Edmonston. "'How is she to act, poor dear? Shall I act for her?' "'She will soon be of age,' said Philip wearily. "'In January, poor darling! Who would have thought how it would have been with her? I little thought last May. But, lo, what have I been at?' cried he, jumping up with a great fright, as Philip, so weak as to be overcome by the least agitation, changed countenance, covered his face with his hands, and turned away with a suppressed sob. "'I didn't mean it, I'm sure. Here, Mama. "'No, no,' said Philip, recovering and sitting up. "'Don't call her, I beg. There's nothing the matter.' Mr. Edmonston obeyed, but he was too much afraid of causing a renewal of agitation to continue the conversation and after walking about the room a little while, shaking it more than Philip could well bear, he went away to write his letters. In the meantime Amabel had been spending her morning in the same quiet way as the former day. She wrote part of a letter to Lara, and walked to the graveyard, rather against her mother's wish, but she was so good and obedient it was impossible to thwart her, though Mrs. Edmonston was surprised at her proposal to join her father and Philip at tea. "'Do you like it, my dear?' "'He told me to take care of him,' said Amabel. "'I cannot feel he deserves you should worry yourself about him,' said Mrs. Edmonston, "'if you knew all.' 
"'I do know all, Mamma, if you mean about Laura. "'Surely you must forgive. "'Think how he repents.' "'What? "'Have you not had his letter? "'Then how did you know?' "'I learned it from Laura herself. "'Her trouble at his illness revealed it. "'Do you say he has written?' "'Yes, Mamma. "'He told Guy all about it, "'and was very sorry, "'and wrote as soon as he was able.' Guy sent you a long message. He was so anxious about it. Amabel showed more eagerness to understand the state of the case than she had about anything else. She urged that Philip should be spoken to as soon as possible, saying the suspense must be grievous and dwelling on his repentance. Mrs. Edmonston promised to speak to Papa, and this satisfied her, but she held her resolution of meeting Philip that evening, looking on him as a charge left her by her husband and conscious that, as she alone understood how deep was his sorrow, she could make the time spent with her parents less embarrassing. Her presence always soothed him, and regard for her kept her father quiet, so that the evening passed off very well. Mrs. Edmonston waited on both, and in Amy's presence was better able to resume her usual manner toward her nephew, and he sat wondering at the placidity of Amy's pale face. Her hair was smoothed back, and she wore a cap, the loss of her long shady curls helping to mark the change from the bright days of her girlhood. But the mournfulness of her countenance did not mar the purity and serenity that had always been its greatest characteristic, and in the faint sweet smile with which she received a kind word or attention, there was a likeness to that peculiar and beautiful expression of her husband's, so as, in spite of the great difference of feature and colouring, to give her a resemblance to him. All this day had been spent by Mr. Edmonston in a fret to get away from Recuara, and his wife was hardly less desirous to leave it than himself, for she could have no peace or comfort about Amabel till she had her safely at home. Still she dreaded proposing the departure, and even more the departure itself, and in spite of Mr. Edmonston's impatience, she let her alone till she had her mourning but when, after two days of hard work, Anne had nearly managed to complete it, she made up her mind to tell her daughter that they ought to set out. Amabel replied by mentioning Philip. She deemed him a sort of trust, and had been reposing in the thought of making him a reason for lingering in the scene where the brightness of her life had departed from her. Mrs. Edmonston would not allow that she ought to remain for his sake, and told her it was her duty to resolve to leave the place. She said, Yes, but for him. And it ended in Mrs. Edmonston going, without telling her, to inform him that she thought Amy ought to be at home as soon as possible, but that it was difficult to prevail on her, because she thought him as not yet well enough to be left. He was, of course, shocked at being thus considered, and as soon as he next saw Amabel, told her with great earnestness that he could not bear to see her remaining there on his account, that he was almost well and meant to leave Recuara very soon. The journey was very easy, the sea voyage would be the best thing for him, and he should be glad to get to the regimental doctor at Corfu. Amabel sighed, and knew she ought to be convinced. The very pain it gave her to lose sight of that green grave, the chestnut tree, and the white mountain, to leave the rooms and passages which still to her ears were haunted by Guy's hushed step and voice, and to part with the window where she used each wakeful night to retrace his profile as he stood pausing before her, telling her of his exceeding happiness. 
That very pain made her think that opposition would be selfish. She must go some time or other, and it was foolish to defer the struggle. She must not detain her parents in an infected place, nor keep her mother from Charles. She therefore consented and let them do what they pleased, only insisting on Arnaud's being left with Philip. Philip did not think this necessary, but yielded when she urged it as a relief to her own mind, and Arnaud, though unwilling, and used to his own way, could make no objection when she asked it as a personal favour. Arnaud was, at his own earnest wish, to continue in her service, and as soon as Philip was able to embark was to follow her to Hollywell. All this time nothing passed about Laura. Amabel asked several times whether Papa had spoken, but was always answered, Not yet. And at last Mrs. Edmonston, after vainly trying to persuade him, was obliged to give it up. The truth was he could not begin. He was afraid of his nephew, and so unused to assume superiority over him that he did not know what to do, and found all kinds of reasons for avoiding the embarrassing scene. Since Philip still must be dealt with cautiously, better not enter on the subject at all. When reminded that the suspense was worse than anything, he said no one could tell how things would turn out, and grew angry with his wife for wishing him to make up a shameful affair like that when poor Guy had not been dead a week, and he had been the death of him. But it was just like Mamma; she always spoiled him. He had a great mind to vow never to consent to his daughter marrying such an overbearing, pragmatical fellow. She ought to be ashamed of even thinking of him when he was no better than her brother's murderer. After this tirade Mrs. Edmonston might well feel obliged to tell Amabel that Papa must not be pressed any further, and, of course, if he would not speak, she could not, nor did she wish it. "'Then, Mamma," said Amabel, with an air of decision that had lately grown on her, "'I must tell him. I beg your pardon,' she added imploringly, "'but indeed I must. It is hard on him not to hear that you had not had his letter, and that Laura has told.' I know Guy would wish me, so don't be displeased, dear Mamma. I can't be displeased with anything you do. And you give me leave? To be sure I do. Leave to do anything but hurt yourself. And would it be wrong for me to offer to write to him? No one else will, and it will be sad for him not to hear. It cannot be wrong, can it? said she, as the fingers of her right hand squeezed her wedding-ring, a habit she had taken up of late. "'Certainly not, my poor darling. Do just as you think fit. I am sorry for him, for I am sure he is in great trouble, and I should like him to be comforted, if he can. But, Amy, you must not ask me to do it. He has disappointed me too much.' Then Mrs. Edmonston left the room in tears. Amabel went up to the window looked long at the chestnut-tree, then up into the sky, sat down and leaned her forehead on her hand in meditation, until she rose up, cheered and sustained as if she had been holding counsel with her husband. She did not overestimate Philip's sufferings from suspense and anxiety. He had not heard a word of Laura, how she had borne his illness, nor how much displeasure his confession had brought upon her nor could he learn what hope there was that his repentance was accepted. He did not venture to ask, for after engaging to leave all to them, could he intrude his own concerns on them at such a time? It was but a twelvemonth since he had saddened and shadowed Guy's short, 
life and love with the very suffering from uncertainty that he had found so hard to bear. As he remembered this, he had a sort of fierce satisfaction in enduring this retributive justice, though there were moods when he felt the torture so acutely that it seemed to him as if his brain would turn if he saw them depart and was left behind to this distracting doubt. The day had come on which they were to take their first stage as far as Vicenza, and his last hopes were fading. He tried to lose the sense of misery by bestirring himself in the preparations, but he was too weak, and Mrs. Edmonston, insisting on his attempting no more, sent him back to his own sitting-room. Presently there was a knock, and in came Amabel, dressed for the first time in her weeds, the blackness and width of her sweeping crape making her young face look smaller and pale her, while she held in her hand some leaves of chestnut that showed where she had been. She smiled a little as she came in, saying, "'I am come to you for a little quiet, out of the bustle of packing up. I want you to do something for me.' "'Anything for you. It is what you will like to do,' said she with that smile, "'for it is more for him than for me.' "'Could you, without teasing yourself, put that into Latin for me by and by? "'I think it should be in Latin, as it is in a foreign country.' "'She gave him a paper in her own writing. "'Guy Morville, of Redcliffe, England, "'died the eve of St. Michael and all angels. Eighteen-something. "'Aged twenty-one and a half, I believe in the communion of saints. "'Will you be so kind as to give it to Arnaud when it is done?' she continued, he will send it to the man who's making the cross. I think the kind people here will respect it. Yes, said Philip, as soon as it is done, and thank you for letting me do it. But, Amy, I would not alter your choice, yet there is one that seems to me more applicable. Greater love hath no man. I know what you mean, said Amy, but that has so high a meaning that he could not bear it to be applied to him. "'Or rather, what right have I to quote it?' said Philip bitterly. "'His friend. "'No, Amy, you should rather choose. "'If thine enemy thirst give him drink, "'for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. "'I'm sure they're burning on mine.' "'And he pressed his hand on his forehead. "'Don't say such things. "'We both know that at the worst of times "'he looked on you as a sincere friend.' Philip groaned, and she thought it best to go on to something else. "'I like this best,' she said. "'It will be nice to think of far away. I should like, too, for these Italians to see the stranger has the same greed as themselves.' After a moment's pause, during which he looked at the paper, he said, "'Amy, I have one thing to ask of you. Will you write my name in the prayer-book?' "'That I will,' said she and Philip drew it from under the sofa-cushion, and began putting together his pocket-gold pen. While he was doing this, she said, "'Will you write to me sometimes? I shall be so anxious to know how you get on.' "'Yes.' "'Thank you,' said he with a sigh, as if he would fain have said more. She paused, then said abruptly, "'Do you know they never had your letter?' "'Ha!' "'Good heavens!' cried he, starting up in consternation. "'Then they don't know it!' "'They do. Sit down, Philip, in here. I want to tell you all about it. They know it.' 
poor Lara was so unhappy when you were ill that Mamma made it out from her. He obeyed the hand that invited him back to his seat, and turned his face earnestly towards her. He must let her be his comforter, though a moment before his mind would have revolted at troubling the newly made widow with his love affairs. Amabel told him, as fully and clearly as she could, how the truth had come out, how gently Lara had been dealt with, how Charles had been trying to soften his father, and Papa had not said one angry word to her. "'They forgive her. Oh, Amy, thanks, indeed. You have taken away one of the heaviest burdens. I am glad, indeed, that she spoke first. For my own part I see through all their kindness and consideration how they regard me. "'They know how sorry you are, and that you wrote to tell all,' said Amabel. "'They forgive you. Indeed they do.' but they cannot bear to speak about it just yet. "'If you forgive, Amy,' he said in a husky voice, "'I may hope for pardon from any.' "'Hush! Don't say that. You have been so kind all this time, and we have felt altogether so much that no one could help forgetting anything that went before. "'Then you will write to me, and you will tell me how to direct to you?' "'You will write to me?' cried Philip, brightening for a moment with glad surprise. "'Oh, Amy, you will quite overpower me with your goodness—the coals of fire,' he finished, sinking his voice and pressing his hand to his brow. "'You must not speak so, Philip,' then looking at him. "'Is your head aching?' "'Not so much aching as—' he paused and exclaimed as if carried away in spite of himself— almost bursting with the thoughts of—of of you, Amy, of him whom I knew too late, willfully misunderstood, envied, persecuted, who—oh, Amy, Amy, if you could guess at the anguish of but one of my thoughts, you would know what the first murderer meant when he said, My punishment is greater than I can bear. I can't say I don't think, said Amy, in her sweet, calm tone for I have seen how happy repentance made him. But I know it must be dreadful. I suppose the worse it is at the time, the better it must be afterwards. And I am sure this prayer-book—she had her hand on it all the time, as if it was a pleasure to her to touch it again—must be a comfort to you. Did you not see that he made me give it to you, to use that day, when, if ever, there was pardon and peace? I remember— said Philip, in a low, grave, heartfelt tone, and as she took the pen and was writing his name below the old inscription, he added, "'And the date, Amy, and—yes,' as he saw her write, "'from G. M., but put from A. F. M. too. Thank you. One thing more.' He hesitated and spoke very low. "'You must write in it what you said when you came to fetch me that day.' A broken. As she finished writing, Mrs. Edmonston came in. "'My Amy, all is ready. We must go. Good-bye, Philip,' said she, in a tone of one so eager for departure as to fancy farewells would hasten it. However, she was not more eager than Mr. Edmonston, who rushed in to hurry them on, shaking hands cordially with Philip and telling him to make haste and recover his good looks. Amabel held out her hand. She would fain have said something cheering, but the power failed her. A deep color came into her cheeks. She drew her thick black veil over her face, and turned away. 
Philip came downstairs with them, saw her enter the carriage followed by her mother, Mr. Edmonston outside. He remembered the gay smile with which he last saw her seated in that carriage, and the active figure that had sprung up after her. He thought of the kind, bright eyes that had pleaded with him for the last time, and recollected the suspicions and the pride with which he had plumbed himself on his rejection and thrown away the last chance. Should he ever see Amabel again? He groaned and went back to the deserted rooms. End of chapter 36 Part 2